Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me, uh, Ellie Mistal is usually here, but he is off this week. So I have another Above Law editor and host of the Jabot podcast, Catherine Rubino. Hey there. Hi. So thanks for filling in for Ellie. So you've got to get super angry about something for no particular reason. <laughs> I don't know um, if you're ready I, for I, that. I'm not sure that I really... Uh really do anger particularly effectively, but um, I will talk to you for a half hour. How about that? <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Um, I'm not sure that's true, but okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I'm eager to discuss things. How, um, I mean, what have you been up to the last few weeks? Um, not too much. I mean, you know, the end of summer is is rapidly approaching. My Facebook feed is increasingly filled with pictures of my friend's kids' first day of school, which is still kind of bizarre to me that so many people start school in August. I grew up in New York and school always started after Labor Day. I mean, literally, like, summer has an end-of-the-year party. It's called Labor Day. The fact that people have to go back to school before that it just continues to blow my mind, even though I'm a grown-ass adult and am well aware that, you know, different places have different school calendars. It still blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, I think the end of summer is coming, uh, like, I'm all discombobulated. No, the the issue... The issue for me is I don't never understood why you would start school right before a three day weekend because you're just gonna have to lose that day anyway. You may as well just wait. But yeah, yeah. I guess they people are worried about snow days and stuff. Anyway, so that's not really a grinding of gears. We don't really have a grinding of gears here. We're uh, just uh, to give away. We probably by the time you hear this, there probably will be an answer to this. But as we are recording, we have not gotten a. Paul Manafort verdict, so we don't have anything to uh, complain about on that, uh, though I guess I would complain that I do not own an ostrich feather jacket or whatever he bought for thousands and thousands of dollars. So we don't have any of that to talk about, so I think maybe we'll just jump into discussing the news of the week. But first, I'll point out, I've got a quick thing to read here, which is in the new Law 2020 podcast... ATL editor-at-large David Latt interviews distinguished legal and technology experts to learn how artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies are transforming different aspects of the practice and profession of law. These podcast episodes are being published in conjunction with feature stories about AI and law that you can access at abovethelaw.com slash law2020. So please check out both the podcast and the Law 2020 site. You know, we're um, that's actually going to be the next episode after this. We're going to have an episode where I'm down at the International Legal Technology Association annual that conference. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, no, we're going to talk about, uh, there's going to be some hot blockchain takes, I'm sure, while I'm <laughs> down there. And if you were wondering uh, how much people can talk about AI, blockchain, and the cloud, it, it's for like four whole days. <laughs> So so how do you feel about going to all these uh, technology conferences? You tend to go to a bunch of them. So what's your take? What is uh, law and technology's role in the next couple of years? Well, I'm glad you asked that. 
Um, no, um, <laughs> no. Look, technology is always going to have a place in law, right? Like, sure. Even though we, well, there are some luddite lawyers out there who like to think the law didn't always have these sorts of influences. They they do. Like from the copy machine keyboards and the keyboard on your computer rather than having to send it down to a steno pool to type up your notes. Like we've always had technological advances that have changed law. This is just, we're just at an unfortunate part of the hype cycle where people kind of believe because PR people are telling them (laughs) to that artificial intelligence is going to create robot lawyers who will put everyone out of business. And that's insane and people think that. So I mean, that, it, it's true though, but you're right here, but I do think that you're kind of underplaying the role of Luddites in the law. I can remember one of my my first big law job. I was a first or second year associate and we're working on a big document review. We had to go get X number of gigabytes from a client and a partner seriously sat me down and said, "Okay, so how many boxes would that be?" Oh. And I actually was like, I, I, I don't I don't know. And, I, and he's like, well, you should probably figure out how many boxes that would be. And I actually spent time, billable time, trying to figure out the scope of, I, that's what I referred to it in my, my you know, log, was like figuring out the scope of our document responsibilities. But the reality was I was trying to figure out how many boxes that would be so that the partner could better understand, you know, the resources that he would need to allocate for document review. How many boxes was it? I have no idea. Gosh, I'm, and I'm sure it was completely wrong too, by I mean, the way, because... If it's X number of gigabytes, you're talking about like boxes that could be stacked up to the size of relatively tall buildings probably. Yes, it was a lot. And then it was like, oh, well, well would we or would we not be doing a keyword filtering on them? What would be the difference? Because, you know, it was, it was a few years ago now and I think that folks were a little bit hesitant to do anything where they would not be reviewing every single document from ex-custodian, even the stuff that was like patently non-relevant, you know, their Amazon orders or their, you know, chain of jokes they sent internally or something like that. And they were just like, well, no, we need to lay eyes on every single, you know, document. And I was like, well, I mean, you know, probably not their ones to their mom. That's actually the worst part of the modern legal practice. And the thing that I, if I were to practice today, I would feel the saddest about, which is the one moment of kind of enjoyment you got on a deep dive into documents was when the string of mostly irrelevant, mostly uninteresting emails might hit upon a series of jokes that people are sending around to each other, or, you know, something salacious like a, you accidentally discover someone's affair or something like that. Well, I mean, you know, I worked in document review for a few years and that is absolutely something that used to happen when I when I first started where we actually did find an affair going on between two members of the same company. You know, you found that you found like racist jokes, sexist jokes, some, you know, softcore porn and be like, oh, look at how much how fast I went through these documents. You'd be all excited. And then you'd get down to like, you know, the deal folder or something like that. And you'd be like, oh, gosh, my rape. <laughs> I cannot click through 500 of these documents in an hour. So strange. Yeah. It was the thing that gave your document review life some meaning and uh, kind of sad that's gone. Anyway, <laughs> today there are technological tools that take that away. And obviously that's better for the clients, but, and, you know, it's sad. All right, well, let's move on to discussing something 
important. And by that, I mean something that's absolutely not important, but something that's like thinking like a lawyer kind of important. So the Washington Post style section is a collection of largely fluff pieces. But this week has been nothing but legally relevant, hard-hitting stuff. <laughs> I, it's true. I don't know how they what, what happened, where they stumbled upon the... Well, I can't imagine that lawyers suddenly became stylish, but here we are. Yeah, well, the beginning of it, earlier this week, they did a whole 1,700 words on Tiffany Trump not fitting in at law school. I mean... At this point, listen, her dad is incredibly famous and incredibly unpopular for a lot of people. Is she going to fit in anywhere? You know, I don't think it's really law school's fault. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of have objections to this. I, I've generally been a Tiffany defender. I feel as though there's no reason since she's not working in the administration and is by all stretch of the imagination, she doesn't seem to even get along with the rest of the family. I don't understand why we're causing her much consternation. So why, why was she not getting uh, on with her, her classmates in law school? What did the piece reveal? The piece revealed, well, I mean, I don't know what it revealed. What the piece claims is that <laughs> there are, that everybody watches her and sends around nasty WhatsApp messages about what she's wearing, that she's, you know, surrounded by secret service people who don't look like anybody else in law school and... She's just somewhere between non-entity and kind of a a distraction. But what really got me was it seemed as though there were a series of people who were being interviewed anonymously with these opinions, but it was a handful. And I just refused to believe that was probably accurate. And lo and behold, the back-channel conversation that I've had with some Georgetown students is this story makes no sense to us. That's not at all what it's like. Yes, she has Secret Service people around her. No, they aren't really a problem. She's generally congenial to the extent that you ever run into her, which you don't run into her a ton, partially because it's a pain in the ass for her to ever be hanging out in the law school. And I'm like, well, that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure also that the Washington Post style section is quite as familiar with how kind of awkward law school, especially, I mean, she just finished her first year of law school. She's only been there you know, hasn't been there all that long. It, it can be awkward for lots of people for lots of different reasons. There's a ton of studying. There's a lot of competition for grades. And, and people are so focused on what they're doing themselves and their own grades that, you know, I can't imagine that her experience, well, of course, it's going to be unique, but it's probably not materially different from a large swath of her classmates. Yeah. And I also felt there was some part where the article got a little political and started quoting people, many of whom weren't even law students, but people saying that, oh, you know, she should be more active in, you know, protests of her dad's policies and stuff like that. And I'm kind of like, okay. I mean, not to dismiss that people should stand up for things, but does it really matter? Like at that point that you put so much energy into what she should be doing. I feel like she kind of becomes an empty signifier, right? Like these people sure. are fighting over her more because it like helps them narcissistically to say she's on their side. I mean, the fact that she's not running the Federalist Society is already kind of a political act on her <laughs> part, right? Like she has every reason to, and she doesn't. And certainly not to take anything away from, from young 20-year-olds who are politically active, but you know, she's 
she's not, you know, an exper- you know, doesn't have a ton of experience outside of a classroom environment, right? You know, she was in undergrad, now she's in law school. Like, you know, I think that not everyone develops their political opinions at the same time frame. And, you know, she's not doing anything to advance her father's agenda. And isn't she also working on a lot of uh, sentencing reform stuff in her spare time, like over the summer? That's true. She's working on sentencing reform, which, I mean, granted, it only came about because somehow Kim Kardashian got involved with it. But, you know, um, that's one of those things. Hey, listen, you got to take the W's where you can get the W's. If Kim Kardashian can get people who are are probably unjustly continue to be in jail, out of jail, take the W. Right. And and I think that if, you know, it may not be nearly as flashy, but Tiffany has been working with Sean Hopwood, who's fairly known in these circles as a criminal justice reformer. Uh, he's a legal fellow who works at Georgetown and was actually a felon himself back in the day. He was uh, convicted of bank robbery and turned himself around, became a jailhouse lawyer, then a real lawyer, got himself a prestigious clerkship, and now teaches and runs project to deal with these things. And that was who Tiffany worked with in the over her summer. Um, which, that is a pretty political statement. I agree. And, you know, it's a good one. It's about as far to the progressive wing of what you can do within the confines of being, you know, related to this administration. The criminal justice reform is one of those things that can transcend party label just a little bit. The Koch brothers, for instance, are involved in funding a lot of these initiatives, even though, you know, it would seem on paper to be much more of a liberal position. But uh, there's some conservative backing for it. And it's a place where like a a nice little niche where somebody who's socially active can still not necessarily raise eyebrows if they're part of this administration. Anyway, so it just bugged me. I just feel like this was a very Mean Girls-esque broadside. Just we know this somebody who's reasonably famous who goes to a law school and we're going to talk about how they must not be a very good law student. And uh, it just, nothing that came out in this article struck me as particularly convincing that there was a problem there. So as far as you can tell, Tiffany Trump, normal law student. I mean, as normal as you can be in under the circumstances. Yes, you can't really be normal when you're um, surrounded by armed guards at all times. But, sure. you know, <laughs> I mean, I certainly don't think she probably goes to the bar every week. But, I mean, even the article admitted that she goes out So she's drinking. not a normal law student, yeah? I mean, yeah, but but even the article admits that she has gone out a couple of times to bar reviews with them. So, you know, she's trying. She's trying as much as she can, and that's about all that I think one could ask of her in this sort of situation. So that was the style section kind of earning our ire this week. But they then turned around and gave us a masterpiece A stroke of genius on looking inside the marriage of a Wachtell Lipton partner. Uh, For those who are pre-law folks, that's a very prestigious law firm. And one of its, actually, I guess he's of counsel now, but one of its more prominent people is George Conway, who you may know as a prominent critic of the president, but also the husband of Kelly. Ooh, awkward. And if you thought it was awkward before, Wow, this 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 article. This article's <laughs> a masterstroke. Apparently, at least according to the article's explanation, Kellyanne wanted to have the Washington Post do a feature on her to show how everything's normal and nice and how she's 
doing well. She's great. The family's great. And mm-hmm. George just can't help but throw shade all over this interview throughout the interview. <laughs> it's constant. Every time she gets excited about something, he's there to throw some like, yeah, well, he went bankrupt twice. He can't stop himself from mouthing off about the president throughout an interview that is a puff piece. And it's amazing. That is kind of amazing. And didn't he say in the article uh, that if he could go, knowing what he knows now, if he could go back in time, he would make sure that Kellyanne never met the president? Yes. He's apparently the one who introduced them, and he regrets it and would reverse it. And uh, yeah, this is all stuff that ends up in an interview that is supposedly a PR puff piece for her. That, that's got a sting. Although, you know, we're talking about her. She's increasing her own personal brand as something, you know, somewhat separate from the president. And you got to imagine that that helps her long term. She at one point in the interview, she tells the reporter that what George does is disrespectful of their marriage vows, quote, according to a source close to the family. And it's like, no, you, she was trying to badmouth her husband on background. <laughs> Who does that? I, 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 I want to be an anonymous source to rip my husband. Yeah, and instead they just printed that entire dialogue that oh, the, the journalist had with Kellyanne and made it seem, first of all, it also demonstrated her um, flexibility with things like the truth. Yeah, no, I mean, like, poor George. Um, <laughs> I never thought that, you know, you would actually be on a podcast in 2018 being like, poor George Conway. Like, <laughs> I mean, it seems so long ago. He was he was high in line to be a top official with the Justice Department at one point, And now he was considered a front runner. Yeah. Just just unbelievable. It's <laughs> it's, you know, like hey style section. We, we give you a lot of guff, but uh, you found a way to give us two, for very, very, very wildly different reasons, excellent <laughs> legal stories to talk about today. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of kind of, I guess that, that's what happens at the end of the summer, right? There's not a lot of, of other things going on, so people kind of get very gossipy, and yeah. <laughs> both of those stories definitely kind of fill that role that, you know, above the, above the law has as being kind of the gossip of big law. I just, from George's perspective, it seems like he's working out of his uh, a house down in D.C. I think I'm not an expert on exactly how he moved, but I believe his, his current title is counsel. He used to be partner, so I'm feeling like perhaps his relocation to D.C. has forced him to kind of slow down exactly how much work he's doing at Wachtell. But it's got to be rough. So this is a guy who not only has kind of scaled back what his life's work is, but also he has to sit around and watch the administration that he criticizes constantly on his Twitter. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, wow, you you should do that too. Because that's <laughs> Pick another, up that one. That's another one. But I mean, listen, uh, you know, you say poor George, but I don't have a ton of sympathy for him. He worked quite tirelessly in his own right in 2016 to get Donald Trump elected. I think it's yeah. his own short-sighted, privileged worldview that allowed him to want Donald Trump to be president in the first instance and then turn around and be shocked, shocked, I tell you, that he's a terrible president. Yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely, and he's also the person who is most often believed to be the one to have leaked to the press the details of Bill Clinton's penis shape. 
So it's not like he's. Ah, I mean, yeah. 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 It's not like he's, he, he's been a, out of a it. long tradition of being very involved in political gossip and and you know maybe it's not really surprising that the piece that the Washington Post did was such an almost intimate portrait of what their actual day-to-day life must be like. Yeah. Yeah. Poor George sitting <laughs> sitting in his office eating cereal sad while she's on TV. That was <laughs> that was pretty much what I took away from this article. Um, that that seems like the ultimate SNL Saturday Night Live bit would just be, you know, poor George just cut to him eating cereal sadly. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I I'm 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 a cereal. I enjoy cereal and I I think it's one of those things that should be eaten beyond just the breakfast hours, but there's something just kind of like sad about sitting in the dark and eating cereal. Like it it, it just <laughs> strikes a chord of like pure sorrow. Like if there's some compound German word for like misery <laughs> it's like shaffen cornflakesum or something like there's some like long Amazing. way which, yeah shot in cornflakeism is yeah. going to be uh my new very favorite made-up word <laughs> all right well yeah. that's that's your week in uh legal gossip i think i think that sums it all up there wasn't really anything else this week of uh of great well, there note. was the the CNN poll that recently came out oh. pointing out that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh is historically unpopular. He is, yeah. Yeah, so like less than, like, like just since Robert Bork, we have not had such an unpopular Supreme Court nominee. That includes the unsuccessful nomination of Harriet Myers, which remember, was an embarrassment all the way around way back in the, the days of 2005. Can you remember how like naive we all were that we thought that, that was the largest embarrassment the president could ever really do, we could imagine? And, and here we are in 2018 being like, man, but if only Justice Myers could rein in Justice Kavanaugh. Why? Well, I mean, yeah, that Harry Myers thing, I, it's kind of faded into obscurity, but how ridiculous that was where it was just, she had very very i mean she was she was a fine a high ranking lawyer but she had no real chops to suggest that she could be on a supreme court on the on the other hand part of the reason why i'm not shocked that she might have been more popular than kavanaugh is when i think back to the harriet myers years the knock on her was that she hadn't spent a sufficient amount of time being an academic or sitting on a bench already and you know, sometimes I wonder if maybe part of the problem with the court as it is constructed is that we have too many people who have no other life experiences than being an academic or being on a bench. Maybe yeah. maybe we should have been less harsh on her. <laughs> and if nothing else, if we had been less harsh on her, then Alito would not be on the court. Well, that that is a fair point. I mean, I can't imagine any of her jurisprudence would be significantly worse than, than Alito's. So... Yeah. You know, hindsight being what it is. Yeah. I mean, we all kind of ganged up on that one because it was funny. And I mean, by all, I mean, it was a bipartisan distaste for her. Sure. I mean, that's why her nomination was withdrawn, right? Like, yeah. And, and yet still, as you point out, you know, less unpopular more, than More Kavanaugh. popular. Harriet yeah. Meyer's nomination was way more popular. Well, not way, but more popular. Yeah. Than, than Kavanaugh. And and largely, if you looked in the internals of the poll, it has to do with a gender gap. Women are, whether they be Democrat, Republican, independent, undecided, are way, way more likely to think that Kavanaugh's unqualified or shouldn't be on the bench, that his views are outside of the mainstream. Wow. And, you know, which... 
you know, you in particular, I know, give a lot of uh, flack to the mainstream Democrats for not being aggressive enough kind of in in resisting. And, and I have to say, like, I was like, well, you know, apparently their message has come across to a significant portion of women in this country that Justice Kavanaugh will not be good for you. Yeah, I mean, it's been a fairly successful messaging campaign <laughs> on their part, which, you know, assuming it results in any votes, that's a different question, but we'll see. Well, hey, that's the week that was, as we put it in uh, gossipy lawyering. We really hoped that we would have Bird Boy Manafort getting sentenced today or something, but looks like we're still in deliberations. So, yeah, cool. Anything else on your part? Nope. Uh, have a good summer, man. Enjoy the, the last few days of freedom while you can. Yeah, no, do that. Meanwhile, next week you'll hear some recaps of my time at uh, the ILTA conference, and you'll hear some hot takes on, on technology. Hot and take. uh, after that, after that, I don't know. I think we've, uh, we've got some shows coming up as the legal calendar starts rolling again that are going to be uh, fun insights into some different ways in which people interact with the law and some different segments of the legal coverage community. So it'll be interesting. All right. So thanks for listening. Thanks for filling in for Ellie here, Catherine. Absolutely. So you should be subscribing to this podcast. You should be reviewing this podcast. You should be giving it stars, telling everyone about it so that you can help us get out there to more people. You should read AboveTheLaw.com. You should follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One. Correct. Spelled K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-1. Also listen to all of the uh, other Legal Talk Network podcasts uh, on the network. Also, uh, not actually on the network, but um, one of the Above the Law podcasts, Catherine hosts The Jabot, which is a shorter podcast that's kind of based specifically on kind of social justice issues in the law. And that's everything I have. So talk to everyone later. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.